take every opportunity to learn every aspect of the business. If someone gives you an opportunity to do something, take it. You also need to give your team the opportunity to stand on your own two feet. And sometimes they're going to fall flat on their face and that's okay. We don't want it to happen. But the thing is, is if you don't create an environment where people can make mistakes and be safe making those mistakes, then you are not pushing the envelope and you are not going to be able to take it to the next level. Welcome to the Hospitality Mentor Podcast. I'm your host, Steve Turk. Join me as we dive into the personal stories of some of the world's best hospitality professionals. We follow the journey of their ups, downs, and wild turns to find out what it truly takes to make it in the amazing world of hospitality. This episode is brought to you by our podcast partners at Real-Time Reservation. Their inventory management system is best in class for hotels and resorts to manage their non-room inventory. The web-based application allows for creative upselling of overnight and daytime visitors with add-ons and pre-planned packages. Hotel guests and non-guests can reserve cabanas, pool chairs, activities, amenities, excursions, events, day passes, and much more. The real-time reservation platform offers a fully integrated pre-arrival portal where guests are verified through the property management system. Guests can prepay for cabanas and activities through credit card integrations, which are then processed through point of sale. All of our listeners that might be interested in using real-time reservation are welcome to explore the demo at realtimereservation.com. Once again, that's realtimereservation.com. All right, welcome to another episode of the Hospitality Mentor Podcast. Today, I'm excited for this one. I've got Trisha Perez Keneally, the owner of the Inn at Hastings Park. Trisha, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Steve. Well, Trisha, we jump in right away on this podcast. What was your first job in hospitality? Some people would probably say that my first job in hospitality was when I opened my own doors at the Inn at Hastings Park. I had my own catering business beforehand, and I had actually started when I graduated from Le Cordon Bleu with my grand diploma in 2003, we moved back to the States, and I had young children, and so I started by donating my services to charity auctions. But I actually really feel that some of my experiences in my prior life as an investment Mm -hmm. banker and a commercial banker, there are really important aspects of hospitality in both of those jobs. I was a forward-facing banker as a corporate finance professional. My responsibility was to help people through financing processes. And so there is a hospitality aspect to that because you are taking care of your client, especially my clients. They were start, a lot of them were startups. So for these people, this was the most pivotal event in their entrepreneurship. They were monetizing what they had worked for years for. And so you have to be cool, calm, and collected. You have to anticipate people's needs before they even know what they are. And you have to make sure that people have a good time along the way, right? So I think that that is the essence of hospitality is anticipating what your guests want and need before they even know it. So I guess I had some training before I sort of jumped into the fire and opened my own hotel. I would say you definitely did. So I want to talk about the prior, before hospitality life. 
what was it like? What was your life like before you decided to transition into the world of hotels and, and the inns? So I guess the one of the other aspects that was great for being in the hospitality business is being an investment banker's full throttle. Very long days. You know, you can be working six or seven days a week. The hours are long. So I worked in New York initially, then I worked in Boston, and then I worked in London in England. So I traveled all over Europe with my job. Wow. One of the years that I was working in Boston, I actually spent the bulk of the year commuting to California. So I was a very savvy consumer of the hospitality industry. I stayed in hotels all the time. Mm -hmm. And I really used a lot of that experience as a traveler in formulating the ideas for what I wanted our style of service to be at the inn. So, you know, in a nutshell, it was very hard throttle, hands-on. And you have to be used to working really long hours and working hard. So those are all skills that are so easily transferable. Not only transferable, those skills are essential to be successful in the hospitality industry. So when you were in investment banking, maybe you kind of give us like the 30 second download, because we all hear this investment bankers and traders and all these different terms. I don't really know too much different. What were you investing in? Was it startup companies? Was it big companies? Was it real estate so, or all different things? As a corporate finance banker, I was helping companies line up financing. So that could take the that could be a private placement, which it means qualified investors are investing in a company. It could be an initial public offering, which is the first time a company is going to the public markets to be listed on the exchange. It could be there might be a company that wanted to acquire one of my clients or my client wanted to acquire somebody else. In that case, I would usually be the relationship manager and bring in a mergers and acquisition team to help with that transaction. So I was actually helping my clients figure out their next step of financing and what that looked like. And, you know, there are times where you could be working with a company and you could have three processes going on simultaneously. There are companies that are going public, but at the same time, they may be looking to grow and maybe acquiring another company, but they also may be looking for an additional investment from another company. So it's really you're a little bit of a jack or chill of all trades in terms of financing when you're in that corporate finance position. Yeah, sounds, look, it sounds interesting to me, but you decide to make a pivot. Was it just that you got burnt out? Was it you wanted something else or you always deep down wanted to be in hospitality? So I think what I always knew was that I wanted to be an entrepreneur. My father is a CPA by training, worked for one of the big eight firms, but then he started his own accounting firm when we were living in Puerto Rico, which is where he is from originally. And I always knew from a very young age that I wanted to have my own company. I wasn't as sure about what I wanted, wanted it to be related to, but from a very young age, I was also very passionate about food and cooking mm -hmm. and the whole reason behind opening up the inn is my true passion is culinary education and teaching people how to cook, to really be comfortable cooking. And right. so what I realized is that if I wanted to teach people how to cook, then I needed to learn from the best. I needed to be educated by the best. And so I decided that I would leave investment banking and finally take that leap. This was after 9-11. And I think a lot of people, for a lot of people, it was a moment of reckoning, right? Mm -hmm. It was, okay, here's the moment. 
what do I really want to do? And what I really wanted to do was teach people how to cook and share my passion for the culinary arts and also for hospitality, that aspect of taking care of people and nurturing people. And I left investment banking and I attended Le Cordon Bleu in London and I earned what's called Le Grand Diplôme, which means that I studied both pastry and cuisine. And then I graduated, we were living in London. We had lived in London for three years. That first year I was an investment banker. Technically I started March of 2002 at Le Cordon Bleu. It took 18 months in August of 2003, I graduated. And like three weeks later, we moved back to Lexington, Massachusetts, which is where I had moved when I was 12. So it's my hometown and we moved back here. So before you went to the Cordon Bleu, would you be the friend where I say, oh, we're going to Trisha's place. She, she's cooking up a dinner tonight for everybody. Or were you cooking for family as you're growing up? Because you said you had some Puerto Rican background. I, was, were you that friend? God bless my mother, right? I was the kid who made purple buttercream when she was mm-hmm. 11. Can you imagine that? Buttercream, purple, all over the kitchen. And at that age, I wasn't so good about cleaning up after myself. And my mother, okay, whatever. Sounds like my daughter. Right? But (laughs) I was that person. So when I was working in Manhattan on the weekends, we would go out to to the, we would, we would go out to the Hamptons. That's where we went. And we were sharing a house with, you know, 24 of my closest friends. Everyone else would be on the beach and I would be going to buy all the ingredients and making dinner for 25 people. And I thought that that was the best thing ever. Yeah, see, it's funny because I love doing that too. I'm not the, as great a cook as some of my friends, but I like doing it. It's a feeling that you have, that hospitality. You just like giving back to people. So you're it's doing cool. it. You go to Le Cordon Bleu. You get your, your degree there. What was it called again? Le Grand Diplôme. You get the Grand, the grand, grand Diplôme. Yeah. The Grand Diplôme. You've now been told you're the master at a lot of things. What happens after that? So after that, I was, Gabriella, my oldest, was six months old when I started at Le Cordon Bleu. By the time I graduated, I was pregnant with my second, my son, Connor. And when we got back to Lexington, you know, it's so interesting to move back to your hometown as an adult. I, I got really involved in town government, advocating for the public schools. And as I said, I was donating these dinners. So people would bid on dinner for eight and it would be, you know, they, they could pick whatever they wanted. One couple, I made this amazing Peruvian dinner for them. They just come back from Peru. So I really, you know, paired it with wines and people began to have a good time. People as a result of that began to ask me to cater things for them. And so the initial idea was we started a catering business and I started with a dear friend here, my friend, Melissa, as well as my, my sister and another friend of hers. And then what happened was I had always thought, so we've progressed a few years. We came back in 2003. Mm -hmm. Actually this weekend is the anniversary of when I looked at the inn for the first time in 2010. So Lexington, I don't know if you've ever been to New England or Lexington. So Set the scene for us. It's out of central casting. Lexington is out of central casting. We take great pride in being the birthplace of the American Revolution. So quintessential town center, beautiful town green. Everything is historic. It's beautiful. But I always thought it was sort of funny that we didn't have an inn, especially because the the that morning they waited at what was called what was called the Buckman Tavern. It was an inn right? The revolution, the the militia, they were hanging out at an inn before they went out and 
I wouldn't say welcome, but encountered the regulars advancing on Lexington. And so I was always kind of looking for a property. And this property came on the market in 2010. And we took a huge leap of faith. I submitted a proposal to buy the property and turn it into a 22 guest room in with the restaurant. The number was 54 seats. I think that was the the number. Mm -hmm. And they accepted my proposal. And then it took a year and a half to get through zoning because as the oldest part of the country, although there's parts of Florida, you know, St. Augustine that might be a little older Mm -hmm. than New England, we don't really like change. Change is not always easy, but we made it through the rezoning. And then it took another year and a half to do the renovations. The house, the original house, there's three buildings. They've been built in the 1800s. And in order for us to bring everything up to the standards and level that you need, not only from a, a code perspective, but more importantly, for, for my needs, to the standards of a luxury hotel, it took a year right. and a half. That's amazing. And, I, and you unpacked a lot here. And I want to go back just a couple of steps because I love the origin story and so do the listeners. So you get back. Are you still doing investment banking when you're banking when you're cooking at these uh, auctions? All right. So you're done with investment so banking. My, I finished investment banking in 2001-ish. I was, I was on maternity leave during 9-11. Got it. So you're like, I'm... Part of the origin story is that I was supposed to go back to be the chief of staff of our European operations because we had offices in London, Munich, and Tel Aviv, but the markets imploded. Mm -hmm. So So a lot of were laying off people. I was on maternity leave and I actually accepted a severance package and I used that money to pay to go to Le Cordon Bleu. I love it. So when you come back home, are you saying, hey, I'm starting a catering company or was it started to evolve? It was, there was time between it because I had Connor. Connor yep. was born in February. And then two years later, which takes us to 2006, I had Rory, our youngest son. And I was, you name it, I ran it, right? I think that part of it is, is when you have worked so full throttle, I felt that I, if I was going to stay home and I had all these skills that I needed to give back. So I was the treasurer of the nursery school. I was on the PTA. I served on town meeting, which is like our town's legislature. Volunteering became a full-time job, but I was cooking a lot and teaching. Like I was teaching kids. I was doing teaching here and there. Mm -hmm. And then as when this property came on the market, it was again, another one of those moments, like here's the moment. And so were you searching, for, you said you were searching for something like this. Were you searching for a restaurant or anything? Looking, a lot of looking, us go on like LoopNet or Realtor. We're always looking for stuff. Like, what's, like what could I do I was with always that? on the lookout for real estate. I was always on the lookout for something that could potentially be an inn. And along mm-hmm. the way, there were a few houses that I, I looked at. It's so funny because then, you know, I have friends that have bought these houses. I'm like, oh, you know, I looked at your house and thought. But it's really <laughs> tough zoning wise, right? They're very... Mm-hmm. There's very, there's only certain places that you would be able to do it because the other part too, about running a small hotel, the financial model is very challenging in a small hotel, especially when you're competing in the luxury market. I have to offer the same level of services that four and five star hotels offer, Right. but I don't have the number of rooms or keys to amortize that cost over. So you needed to have a certain number of rooms, ideally. I would have 50 rooms, but I have 22, right? So 
it had to be a really particular spot. And this spot happens to be on a corner 400 yards from the battle green. It was technically not zoned when we bought it because it had built, it had been built before zoning was introduced. So we had to go through a special process to get it zoned, but it worked because on one side there's religious institutions on another side, there's businesses but there is a neighborhood across the street from us. So you have to be very careful about, about those aspects when you're doing an independent hotel that could be in a smaller town or a residential community. So when you were volunteering, did that come back and help? Did you have relationships you had made because you said you were working with the city a little bit? Did that help at all? Certainly did. And that's, mm -hmm. and I'm a very big believer. You know, you asked the question about when did you start in hospitality all of the things that I did, including the volunteer work, were all skills that have come into play. So I you know, worked on political campaigns. I was active in the schools. So I knew a lot of people. So that community building aspect was essential because to get through the zoning, I ran a political campaign. You know, That's what I did. So all of those skills came into play. And the other thing, too, is that people could see that I genuinely cared for this community. I, I am passionate about the town that I'm from. And so I had demonstrated that through my volunteerism. So when you found the spot, I like this part of the stories as well. You find the place, you start sketching it out. Now, knowing your background and what a go-getter you are, do you start doing your investment banking numbers on the piece of paper? Or was it like on an Excel sheet? Like, all right, I got 22 rooms. I got this much square foot need this restaurant with this many seats. Did you start putting it all out or was it, no, I'm going to go forward. I, I feel well, it. It was a combination. <laughs> I think that, you know, probably there was a lot of gut and we did an initial model. The initial model kind of went out the window because the zoning process was really much more expensive than it should have been because there was somebody who was opposed to the idea. And the thing that's really difficult is that a small group of people can make something really challenging and it really made the process much more expensive, mm -hmm. but it got to a point that I, I kind of dug my heels into the ground on principle and was like, this is the right thing for the town. This is the right project. And I am going to make this happen, which is not always the best financial lens. Right. Because if I looked at the numbers at that point, I should have walked away. All right. So if you were advising me, you might have said, Steve, maybe this isn't the one. Or would you say, go as, with it? As the financial advisor, I yeah, should so have you would said, be telling me. run for the hills, run for the hills. Look, I went to Harvard Business School. I believe right. in capitalism. Yes. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of felt like this is the right, this is the right concept. And we're kind of letting some things get in the way that shouldn't get in the way of development. You know, I prove like I conform to all the different regulations. And so it kind of also became a statement like this is the right thing to do, right? This is the right project for this property. The part that's also difficult from a financial perspective, from it, it being an independent, you know, there's a lot of research out there that it takes five years for an independent hotel to, to reach that Make point. It. Mm -hmm. You know, we, you know, we're in a pretty stable place now, but we invested a ton of money, a ton of money. Right, I was going to uh, ask you about that because it's beautiful. The place is beautiful. You can tell that you took a lot of time building it up. 
I took a lot of time and I probably, and look, I have to thank my husband, who is my financial, who is my partner and, you know, in my, my financial partner, we took a huge risk. We took a huge risk and, you know, we still, there's still a lot of work to do in terms of what we do. I have aspirations. I'm working on a cookbook that frankly has been delayed because I had to step in. I've stepped in and out of that general manager role and I stepped back in full throttle when we reopened after the pandemic. It was very different up here than it was in other parts of the country. I agree with the strategy that we used up here. We were very cautious, but we had a very methodical way of reopening the, the economy. And since we reopened, it's been we've actually been on a, a really good run. That six-month period, it gave me time and it forced me to refocus on the things that were important to me. And so I really was in there, you know, everything from front desk to laundry, which is something I've always done, right? I've been very, very hands-on as an owner. And I think that that's important because it really helps. It's the best way for me to spread the culture that I believe in to my team. Mm -hmm. We work shoulder to shoulder and we're all about taking care of our guests. And so it's much harder as a small independent to see the financial benefit. The challenge is, is that if I'm really knee deep in the operational part, then it's taken away a little bit from me finishing the book that I'm writing about the experience of opening it in. It's taken away a little bit from some of the culinary and educational things that I do. I, I now am much more committed and love doing it. We do cooking classes throughout the month at the inn, and I am the person who teaches it. I think people are blown away. They come for these immersive culinary weekends. Yeah. Like, Who's the teacher? I'm like, I'm your teacher. <laughs> I, it's me. me. Like, I'm going to personally teach you. I'm going to drive you and take you on that historical farm tour. This is about me sharing what I consider to be such, it's such a piece of me, right? What I did at the end is really my sharing my view of hospitality with our guests. I love it. And so I want to get back to feel the passion now. And I want to learn about how you got it open now. So you get approval from the city. You run run this local campaign to get your in. You get the keys. What starts to happen once you got approved? Well, what's interesting is I had the keys, right? Because oh, I, we saw the property in 2010. We closed on the acquisition of the property in 2011. So I was carrying the property while we went through the zoning. Wow. The vote happened in May of 2012. We were able to begin some of the construction, but we had to wait 90 days for the attorney general to certify the results of our town meeting. It's like a technical, but mm -hmm. we started, we were able to get permits to start some of the rebuilding. Some of that rebuilding involved lifting the two outer buildings lifting them right off of their foundation. And I, not me personally, but I paid to have one of the buildings move 18 feet. Wow. So when I literally tell you, like, I moved buildings to make this, to make happen, this happen. We did. So then yeah. the construction was, and I am so lucky because my project manager from the construction side was my father. There you go. 
So my entrepreneurial father, you know, he sold his company a long time ago. We moved to the States. So he actually went to HBS as a 38, Harvard Business School as a 38-year-old. And then he did a lot of real estate development. And his retirement was spent being a general contractor. So he managed the project. And his spreadsheets were pretty incredible, putting that CPA training to good use. So we had to do all the construction. All 22 rooms are decorated differently. So working hand in hand with my designer, Robin Gannon, all 22 rooms are different. A focus on American craftsmanship, especially things that are made in New England. So working with her to source soap stands that were made in Rhode Island, candelabras that were made in Connecticut, dining room chairs and dining room tables that were made in Rhode Island. All of the people that we choose that we chose to represent were people like me, that mm -hmm. people who are following a passion and following a dream and really highlighting that across the property. So it was it was crazy. It, I mean, and there were days when I would stand in the foyer of the buildings and be like, what was I thinking? <laughs> yeah. But I have to say that that moment when yeah, the doors opened. So day one what happens? I'm so sure you remember more, it. There were a few day ones, right? So okay. we were able to get the outer buildings done first. And so we opened some of those hotel rooms in the winter of 2014, like very early on. And then the main building opened on April, April 1st, right? Can you, can you make that up? Right. <laughs> April it's Fool's Day, we're here. <laughs> I kind of felt like it's a joke. We're opening, but but there, I mean, there were crazy things. Like I had everyone hired, staff all hired. We've done the training and we have a phone line in the elevator, right? All elevators have a phone and there was something wrong. Like there was something wrong with the line. And I call and the phone company says, oh, it's going to be six weeks. And I'm heart attack. You got I reservations. I can't get a certificate of occupancy without that phone line by the luck of God. The woman who answered the phone in customer service grew up in Lexington. She took pity on me. She came and did what needed to be done herself. That is amazing. And so this is also something that you learn. Hospitality should be gracious. We should be kind. We should be nice. And comporting yourself and behaving like that in as many situations as possible, it does pay off in the long run, right? Because she... She knew the property. She un I, I explained what I was trying to do. She said, okay, I got this. We will figure this out. And I was so grateful. And so those are the things too, is that that's also something that I think about. People come to us to have fun, but sometimes people come and stay with us for challenging reasons. They may have somebody who's going through medical treatment here in the Boston area. Someone may be sick. Someone may have passed away. And sometimes I'm more proud of my team when they realize that, that their empathy is so locked in that they know and the little things that they do to go out of their way to take care of somebody. I tell this story about I have a lovely young woman. She grew up in Lexington. She came to work for me and she helped somebody to their room and learned that they were there because someone, someone close to her passed away. Without anyone telling her to do this, she goes downstairs and she comes back up and she knocks on the woman's door and the woman opens her door and she has a bowl of chocolate ice cream for the guest. And the guest said, I'm sorry, I didn't order this. 
And she responded, I know that you didn't, but I know that when I'm sad, this is what I want. So I hope this makes you feel better. Oh man, that's beautiful. Right? That's what and it's so all about. Yeah. That's what it's all about. And so what I often tell people who are starting on their journey in hospitality, the beginning comes from the heart. Like if you truly find pleasure from making other people happy, if that fills your cup, then I can teach you everything else. I can teach you, you know, how to do revenue management. I can teach you how to make a bed. I can teach you how to run the laundry. I can teach you how to be a dishwasher. I can teach you all of that. But if you inherently have that in your heart, that's the first requisite. And I tell people, I have some of my children's friends who work for us. The kids that work for me, because my children are now 16, 18, and 21, mm -hmm. I knew when they were 10 or 11 that they were going to be the ones that were going to work for me because they had that spark. I can tell usually within about a minute of people that we interview for the hotel whether or not it's going to be a fit. There's a woman, at, a professor at HBS who did research on this. She talked to, I think it was a bank, and they had a 30-minute test. It was an inter, a 30-second test. And it was if you naturally smiled within 30 seconds, that was your first interview. I use that all the time when I was interviewing too. Well, it- It'd be on time and smile, at least. That was like my two. Oh, <laughs> so I did that. Well, and the other one that I used in investment banking, and I still use it, mm -hmm. I used to make people wait. Like I knew that they were on time, but I would make them wait like five minutes because I wanted to see how they interacted with our receptionists. That's a good one too. Right? Because they're, they're the heart. I always ask the receptionist too. I'd ask the admins how they treat you. Right. I love that you did that too. Yeah. Right. And and I had analysts that worked for me that were brilliant, but they treated the people who were there to help them awfully. And I would say to some of them, you better remember that like I have some influence on what you're going to get paid at the end of the year. And I don't think that you are being respectful and appreciative of the fact that these people are working to make you look good. And to be supportive of you, that's not going to work. It's not going to work. I think that's a great tip. So listener, I think you should rewind this little section here. Don't do it when you're driving. <laughs> Just re-listen to this because <laughs> it's some great tips there, especially if you're going at an interviewing at all levels. But I want to get back to you and your story at the end because it's an award-winning end now. Um, mm -hmm. But it didn't start that way, I'm sure. Right? So first time people sleeping over is different than cooking. Right? I've had this feeling now managing vacation rentals. It's a very different feeling. What was it like for you? Was it anything unexpected or did it go as expected? What was that like once you started people having people stay with you? We paid a lot of attention to the details before we opened. And I think a big advantage for me was that I had been such an avid consumer in this market, mm -hmm. right? I, I had stayed in properties all over the world. I had stayed in Reliant Chateaus around the world. And I knew before we opened that that's what I aspired to be. So many of the standard operating procedures that we had in place, many of the, the finishes, the amenities that we chose were chosen with that in mind, that that was our goal. So there had been a lot of thought given to that based on my experiences and the professional experiences of the team that I hired to open. So we had... Our original general manager had come from another Reliant Chateau property. I have always admired the Boston Harbor Hotel in Boston 
And I ended up hiring several women who had been at the Boston Harbor Hotel and then left when they had children. And when they were coming back to the to work, I hired them. My rooms manager was at Weston and Marriott for years. So I wow. I am very big. I know what I don't know. And I knew what I didn't know. Right. So even though I was an owner, the owner, I had no problem asking my managers to teach me how to do something. And what was that like hiring someone from these kind of name brand hotels to a boutique inn for the first time? How did you convince people to do that? Or was it something easier than you expected? I had to convince them to take a chance on me and my vision. But the properties that I spoke about shared sort of the same vision that I shared. I was also very lucky. You know, one of my best friends from from college, she had worked at the Boston Harbor Hotel in PR. And so I had spent a lot of time at the Boston Harbor. And I really admired their standard of service. I mean, I still like I go if I go to something at the Boston Harbor Hotel, the doormen know me by name. And it's not like I'm there all the time. Like you would think that I would, they know me by name, the doorman. You left right? a good impression. Like that's what we're talking yeah. about. Like that's what you're, you're talking about. So that idea, like I jokingly said in one of the zoning meetings, this is going to be like cheers for our guests. We are going to know your name. And so when you talk about, was it different when, when we opened, of course there were operational glitches, but from the get-go, my team knew that this was going to be personal. Just last night, last night, I was texting with the daughter-in-law of one of my most frequent guests. She started staying with me in the outer building. The grandchildren are now, I think, seven and five, texting my personal phone with her daughter-in-law because we have a particular type of charger in the room and she wanted it. I went into the inn last night and was taking pictures of the charger to send to her daughter-in-law so that she could get that present. But my team does that too, right? My front desk manager, I think she has a group. I, I, I kid you not. It may be, I said 20 last week, someone asked me. She is in personal contact with so many of our guests. She knows their birthdays, the kids, everything. But I tend to be like that too. And so that, that sort of pervades. So was it so different? I don't think it was. I think it was what I was expected. And and it was a blast. And it is a blast, right? Like that. people think I'm crazy. Actually, during the pandemic, like when we reopened, my favorite place to hang out was in the laundry room with the sheeter. So what is a sheeter? It's this huge, like six foot wide machine that we put all of the sheets through so that you get that nice hotel yeah, nice. kind of feeling. I mean, there were days that I would go down there and I would do 50 sheets. I figured like some of us, and I have a short, I'm only 5'2", so I don't have a big wing wingspan. I mean, you're laughing because this is for a podcast and I'm like showing yeah. you my wingspan. Yeah. I figured, we figured out, we taught ourselves how to do it on our own. And I would go down there for hours. And it was a way of clearing my head, right? It's good meditation. I've been down there. I've had to help many times in the laundry right? room. It's so, a good meditation. You just go. So the thing is, is you learn, you need to learn to love every aspect of this crazy business. So in your, in, you know, just by talking to you, I can see now, I'm, I've been looking at pictures of it for the last week and I, I need to come up there because I haven't enjoyed this part of the country all that much because I'm Miami born and raised, my brother's in New York. So maybe I'll have an excuse to come see you soon, Tricia, but the place come is beautiful. In the, come in the summer. It's a little cold right now. 
Yeah, I, I don't I don't do cold very well. I have one jacket. Uh, yep. <laughs> so your team, you, you talk about them like a proud leader. How do you recruit and keep good people there? Because it's, it's a challenge doing it in a small business sometimes. How do you do it? I take care of my team and they take care of me. My first GM went to another really well-regarded GM. My second one, you know, has gone on to another one. My salesperson, my initial salesperson is now running sales for Roland Chateau in North America, like is one of the, the salespeople for North America for Roland Chateau. She's not running it, but she's one of the, like yes. she's representing mm-hmm. Roland Chateau, like all of us, which is amazing. And so I think that I always feel that my responsibility is to train you to take my job. If you work for somebody that doesn't want you to take their job, go find another boss. That's good advice too. That's another one. That's another quote from Trisha here. Right. It, it, like you want to work for people who want you to succeed and be better and do better. And here's another example, right? I, my salesperson, there's been a baby boom at the end. All right, my GM, <laughs> my new I still call her new. She's been with me for, you know, a year and four months. She had a baby. He's now nine months old. My salesperson just had a baby. She was not in sales before I hired her. She'd been, you know, accomplished. She was, you know, she worked for the Ritz in Puerto Rico, worked mm-hmm. for the Ritz here in Boston. Then she went and worked for one of the huge, big food service companies for a very prestigious private school here. I mean, was running the their catering operation for this private school, rivals most hotels. And I met her and she's Puerto Rican. So this natural affinity. Yep. I said to her, you're going to be my new salesperson. And she's like, loca. like, are you crazy? <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, you're going to be my new salesperson and you're going to be really good at it. And she said, but I've never done sales. I'm like, just me. You're going to be my new salesperson. And she has killed it. Killed it. And so I think that the other thing too, is that sometimes we don't necessarily have the functional knowledge, like, okay, so she needed to learn how to use a few systems and whatnot, but she understood the vision, right? And she understood how to talk to people and help them envision their events, right? Because in sales, one of the things that's really challenging when you do sales, and this was also one of the challenges of the zoning, I was doing a sales pitch. I was selling the town and the idea that they needed this in. When I first walked into the property, I could see it like that. I'm like, okay, this is going to be this. This is how it's going to be set up. This is what it's going to be. But a lot of people don't have that vision, right? Mm-hmm. And what makes Javon a successful salesperson is that she sees the vision. She can see the wedding. She can see the christening. She can see the very important business meeting that we're having for 50 people. And so you have to, again, it's that anticipating and being able to verbalize and have people trust you. I've got this. I know what you need. I know what you want. I'm going to take care of every detail so you can focus on what's important. That's what you need, especially when you're planning an event at a hotel. You have so much going on. You need that partner. So I love hearing that you've had that. You have a lot of great partners on your team. Another piece of advice I would give people, people who are young, who are interested Mm -hmm. in hospitality, is that there are many different levels of hospitality. If you aspire to be in the luxury end, you need to experience it. And that's really hard because it's expensive, right? So 
save your money and try to, you know, read the magazines, right? And identify properties that, that you keep seeing mentioned for their caliber of service, for the attributes that you want to learn how to deliver. So people find it funny. I am a huge Disney fan. I'm going next week. Mm-hmm. It's like a kid in a candy store for me because what I am watching, I'm watching the operations people, yeah. right? I'm watching how they're getting people through the queues to get them on the transportation, through the ticket, through the ticketing. I'm watching what new developments have they decided to use for, you know, is it the fast pass? Is it Genie? Is it Lightning Lane? How are we moving people? You know, one of the most ingenious things that Disney did to fill up their restaurants, they introduced a dining plan, right? That forces people to make dinner reservations. So I'm able to control the queue. One of the things that they've changed since the pandemic, park reservations, which at first you would think, well, why would Disney want that? Know how many people are coming. Fantastic. (laughs) I know how many people are coming to the park today. I know how many people I have to have here to make sure that you have a magical day. Let me ask you, have you been on a Disney cruise yet? I I just got back from one. I think I'm going to have to do it. I have to admit that I am a little bit more of a free form person and I'm a little. Me too. I was, didn't know what to expect. It's going to be the Disney cruise. I would tell you. Cruise or one of like the silver, like the the very, you know, small. I'll tell you this Disney cruise, you know, I'm consulting on my audience. know they do a lot of consulting. I probably copy and pasted 10 things from that one five day trip that they were doing just in coffee shops. It was no. unbelievable what they were doing. <laughs> I was just like, I, have, I think all have, these things. I wasn't on the cruise, but this is a story that dear friends shared with us. So we're Disney Vacation Club members, and mm-hmm. this family is also, and they've gone on the cruises. And, you know, they feed you so much on the cruises. Yeah. And their son, they asked him what he wanted for dessert. He must have been like seven or eight. He said, I'm so full. I want nothing. The waiter comes back with a plate, piped in chocolate, nothing. <laughs> That's great. Right. But that's yeah. like a Disney, like that is a Disney moment. And so what I share with my team is that they want to say yes at Disney. So what I tell my team is you figure out how to say yes. Yeah. It may and not I, be exactly what they wanted, but figure out how to say yes. It was shocking to me. I know we're going off tangent here, but just because we're into it here on this Disney cruise, we went out to dinner before we went out to dinner, the house, Man, which is like, hey, what's your favorite character to my six-year-old daughter and four-year-old son? They rattled it off. We went to dinner. At dinner, they both got extremely tired. They passed out. They made them beds out of chairs and then brought over a table skirt and just kind of covered them so that the parents could enjoy our dinner while they slept at the table. We got up, went back to the room. Their sheets were changed to their favorite characters. Crazy. (laughs) That's it. And not even Four Seasons or St. Regis or any of those places doing that. My uh, Disney moment like that, we were traveling. This is another point that applies to both men and women about being parents who work in the hospitality industry. We had one nanny for three years in England. She still comes and spends Christmas with us every year. My nanny here just came and spent Thanksgiving. For 13 years, she was with me. Behind every successful man and woman, there's often, it could be a a grandparent. There's usually another adult behind you who's helping to make it happen. And I am unapologetic about saying that. And I am so incredibly grateful 
to the love and care that these women gave to my children. And so Lydia would sometimes travel with me to Disney. And so this one trip, the boys were little, we were in Epcot as far as you could get from the buses. And mm -hmm. we were hard charging with the kids about Disney. Like literally we had just gone off the plane that day. It's like nine o'clock and like your kids, they're passed out. The server went, he said, and he was, you know, in Epcot, they're often from the other countries, but they, they have that Disney magic. He said, mm. comes back with a wheelchair. We put Lydia, he puts Lydia in the wheelchair. I put one child, right? She had two, the two boys in her lap and I pushed her and we, that's how we left the park. But the, 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 the fact that he's like, here's an obstacle. We're going to help you. We're going to fix it. And we still laugh about that. Because those boys that Lydia pushed in that chair now tower over her, right? Yep. That's but, the story that we still remember it. You still remember that moment. And that's always going to remember. And who are their favorite characters? My kids? Yeah. You're going to laugh at us. So they like Beauty and the Beast, of course. We were, you know, be our guest yeah. was my daughter, yeah. Sobel. And then my son was all the Marvel superheroes. And so he had the sheets, all the Marvel superheroes left. So my daughter is a Belle. My, I'm Elastigirl. Yeah, I can yeah. see it. Yeah. Like, she is my, like, love her, like, make it happen. Mm -hmm. It's totally crazy, but we're going to make it happen. And the other one that I really like is the female chef from Ratatouille. Oh, I love that one. I love Ratatouille. I can watch that all the time. See, we're getting on our Disney tangent here, listeners. So I'm sure you give us in the comments who your favorite characters are. But I well. think that the whole thing about Disney, and, you know, there's other hotel chains that do this too, it's about those magic moments. Right. And you talked about taking care of the kids. So like I felt taken care of them, like when, when they helped me, but I also tell my team a great story about being Neil Perry is one of the top chefs in Australia. Mm -hmm. And this was before we had children, we were eating dinner. We were trying to make a show at the Sydney opera house. So it was very early. And there was a couple young parents with their daughters who might've been six and four, you know, this is one of the nicest restaurants in Australia their service team made those kids feel like they were royalty and they behaved as such. And so what I always try to remind my team is that happy kids make happy parents. So we go out of our way to make sure we call them our pint sized patriots to make sure that the kids feel taken care of, because then that's, it's just so much easier for everyone and for the parents to enjoy if the kids are taken care of. Right. And yeah. those those moments, and also what I also sometimes tell my team is, you could be inspiring the next generation of hospitality employees, because oftentimes if you speak to somebody, they will tell you that they had an experience or a moment that made them feel special, and that inspired them to want to do this for other people. It's true, and that's what happened to me. That's my story. So we we that's, we can vouch for that. That's what happened to mm -hmm. me when I was ten years old. And so I still remember it clearly. But I want to just ask about, because we've touched on a lot of things now. And there's something that just popped up. You know, it's in my feed. It's all over my social media feed. And now is AI and technology and all this that's coming out everywhere. And I've been playing with it. And so I just want to get your opinion, because like you said, you're at an end. Your team is most important. But you also want to make sure you give your guests everything that they want. And now everything seems to speed up. Right? I want everything now. How are you looking at technology in your end? Is it something that you don't want, that you're embracing? How do you see that in your world? 
Oh, Steve, it's so interesting that you bring up AI because we were at dinner with friends last night and we were just talking about this company <clears throat> that's bought by Elon Musk that like you basically could tell yeah. it. It's called ChatGPT. Right? There's obviously some very interesting and relevant applications for this, but I find it scary because it eliminates the human touch. And sometimes it makes us think that we don't need to think. And the problem is, is that that's not necessarily a world that I want to live in, mm -hmm. right? That we, when we don't think about the graciousness and how intuitive and innate it should be to treat one another with kindness and respect. And so I do think that it has applications, right? I'm sure that I could, you know, say, you know, tell me what my ADR should be. I actually, I'm going to go try that. Actually, I'm going to do some revenue management and see what, mm -hmm. it, what information it gives me back. But it's not going to replace the human touch. And that's what I really worry about, that, that we're going to live in a world where people think that they can just dictate a question to a machine and the machine's going to tell them what they should do or what they should think. So I do think it has applications from an operational side. There's probably questions that we can be asking. We can, you know, it can analyze data for us in a much quicker way so we can improve the quality of services that we're delivering. But it's not going to take, it, it can't replicate or substitute for that human touch, which is the essence of what we do. Yeah, I want you to play with it because I agree with you. I don't know how to feel about it yet, but I just asked it a couple of random things. I said, you know, let me get kind of detailed on I was like, write me the standard operating procedures for a five-star in-room dining department. And it wrote out stuff that I was like, that is 100%. I'm getting chills to talk about it. I said, that's 100% accurate. <laughs> and I don't know how it does it. And it comes out as conversational. And I said, all right, well, that's, that's kind of weird. And then I started writing, like, give me your top five recommendations for family-friendly attractions in the Miami area. And it wrote it out just as if you read it from a blog. In seconds. Yeah. I watched it in seconds. And so to me, it's just like, all right, that was crazy to see. Cause I spent a lot of time on LinkedIn putting out ideas and thoughts. And now you're going to start thinking like, well, who's that? Are these real ideas? Are they not? Whose are they? You know, it's going to be interesting to start seeing what happens, especially for my kids. And you have kids now that are in high school, college, like, like someone said, type a type an essay in the tone of Shakespeare about, XYZ topic and I watched it. We did the same thing last night at the dinner table. What's interesting is that one of the our hosts last night, she's a professor. Mm -hmm. and she said, you know, this is actually gonna force a lot of teachers to change how they teach. Back to in back to that in-class essay. Yeah. In right? pencil or pen. <laughs> right. But, but this is what's so scary, right? I have to do, I actually have to spend some time sort of understanding, right? Because some of the AI is, is populated by what happened in the past, right? That, that data is all what happened in the past. What happens when we have to pivot or modify or make a change because there's something different in the system, right? I'm curious. Once you play with it, you got to let me know. All right. Well, we'll maybe we should, you know, let's, let's email we'll some things that we want to I'm curious to see if like some of the questions that we asked, maybe we should come up with a list of 10 questions and see like if we like with what frequency, like we put them in, if the answers change. Yep. All right. So hoteliers, hospitality professionals, anyone listening, send us some questions. We'll test them out. We'll see what comes back. And if Trisha and I would stamp yes or no on these as approved. But, you know, Trisha, we spent a lot of time and I love that we sidetracked on some fun things, but you, you've been 
in a lot of places around the globe. You've done all different kinds of careers. But if young Trisha was coming to work on your team, all right, so young Trisha starting on your team at the end, what advice would you give her as she's starting out her career? Don't be afraid to get your hands dirty. Take every opportunity to learn every aspect of the business. If someone gives you an opportunity to do something, take it. Show up early, stay late. And as a manager, you do need to work shoulder to shoulder with people, but you also need to give your team the opportunity to stand on your own two feet. And sometimes they're going to fall flat on their face and that's okay. Service recovery does work. We don't want it to happen. But the thing is, is if you don't create an environment where people can make mistakes and be safe making those mistakes, then you are not pushing the envelope and you are not going to be able to take it to the next level. You need to learn how to take risk. It is okay to take risk and it is okay to make a mistake or to fail because if you don't, you are not going to get to that next level. Gosh, I think that's just great advice. You gave a lot of great advice today. Well, Trisha, I appreciate you taking the time today. If somebody wants to connect with you, what's the best way they can do that? They can reach me at my email at the end, tpkeneally at inandhastingspark.com. And you can follow me on Instagram at Trisha Perez Keneally. I'm also on TikTok doing a bunch of cooking videos. Just reach out. And if you come to stay at the end, please let us know that you listen to the podcast. We always love knowing that people came because of things like this. And Steve, thank you so much. The podcast is great. Thank you so much for the opportunity to talk to your listeners. Well, Trisha, you made a big fan out of me. I will be coming at some point up there. I need to come see you. I'll bring the kids along too. I appreciate you taking the time today. We'd love to meet them. This podcast is brought to you by Biscayne Coffee. Biscayne Coffee was founded with a giving spirit and a big idea to enjoy delicious coffee roasted in Miami while helping save Biscayne Bay and the animals that live there. As a former food and beverage director, I can assure you these are some of the best quality beans on the planet. 10% of every coffee sold is donated to nonprofits to help preserve Biscayne Bay for all to enjoy. Visit BiscayneCoffee.com today and use promo code MENTOR at checkout to save 10% on your first order. Drink good coffee and create a good outcome.